Chapter sixty five of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter sixty five Her Own Way. You must not let it drop, Kit. You can't let it drop, said Aunt Parslow as she sat in our parlor the next day, having ordered Parker's fly as soon as she received my letter. For the sake of your sweet wife, you are absolutely bound to expose this horrid miscreant. I doubt if there ever was such a case before, though nothing ever surprises me. It was very nasty of you to steal that dog. Why, you might have come and stolen Jupiter on the very same principle of a pretty girl. And you have been punished even more than you deserved. You deserved a month in the stocks, perhaps, with all the dogs in the village sniffing at you, but you did not deserve to lose your own wife, just when you had time to get fond of her. I am not for revenge. I am too old to fancy that we can do much to right ourselves, even if the feeling was Christian. But I belong to an honorable family, in which the fair fame of a lady was never neglected. I declare I never thought once of that. It never occurred to me in that light, I answered with perfect truth, for my kitty's fair name seemed to me so entirely above all question that it could not need any assertion. But since it is capable of being looked at so, there is no doubt what my duty is. No husband of proper spirit could doubt for a moment what his duty is. Miss Parslow spoke very severely, but my wife looked at her reproachfully and ran up to me. No, Kit, no! You shall not go near him. There is nothing too bad for him to do. I have lost you quite long enough already. What do I care what anybody says? Miss Parslow, you have been wonderfully kind, and it is impossible to thank you. Don't spoil it all by putting this into his head. My dear, we shall send the two policemen with him, my aunt replied rather sarcastically. We know how precious he is, and we won't have him hurt. Or perhaps your Uncle Cornelius might go. He has no wife to make a to-do about him. Look, there he comes with somebody to tell us something. He walks like a man of thirty-five, and how polite he always is. Uncle Corney had brought Mrs. Wilcox from his house, and that good lady was in great excitement. She fell upon Kitty and kissed and hugged her until I thought really there had been enough of that. And then she turned round and addressed us at large, casting forth her words with vehemence and throwing out her hands as if to catch them. Ladies and gents, oh, ladies and gents, such a thing have just come to my knowledge through Ted, which is the most intellectuous boy, though my own child, and was never such myself. I set off straight away when I heard it, and begged to excuse of my present disapparel, to catch the three-ten bus, or else wait another hour. And if there is a good horse in the place, which by the look of it there must be many, I do beg of Master Kit to put him in at once, if not too late to prevent bloody murder. Them police is so slow, so slow, though I never join a single word against them, for all mortal men is fallible. I can't make out what it is, said Uncle Corney when we all looked at him for an explanation. This good lady must be allowed her own time. I am afraid that I have hurried her. Not at all, Mr. Orchardson, not at all. Nothing could be more gentlemanly, and I will say the same of all Sunbury. But the wedding was to be tomorrow, gents, regardless of expense, at eleven o'clock at the Church of St. Nicholas the Virgin. It was not time for me to forbid the bands, though knowing of holy impediments. Very handsome it was to be, with six bridesmaids, Miss Frizzy and Miss Jerry for two of them, 
cook, who is a very self-respected young woman, though Ted says she have turned forty-two, and no concern of his if she is even two and forty. She dropped in promiscuous and told me all about it, and all was as merry as a marriage bell. But just as I was having my bit of dinner, in she comes with her cap ribbons flying off and her apron strings burst, being rather stout with running. For God's sakes, come up, Mrs. Wilcox, she says, or they'll be murdered on, murdered on, and nobody to see it. I was there in two minutes, as you may suppose, and there was Madame tearing up and down the front walk with her black silk cloak on that makes her look so tall, and her face, oh, you should have seen the color of it, and the flashing of her eyes and the waving of her arms. I insist upon knowing, I insist upon going in. I am going to be locked out of my own house, tomorrow indeed. Don't talk to me of tomorrow. How dare you prevent me from entering my own door? I will find out your disgraceful tricks and expose you. You are not fit to marry a respectable girl. I'll send for a policeman and have the door forced. You won't do anything of the kind, her son Mr. Downey made answer quietly. Although I could see he was awful pale and he sat on a kitchen chair in front of the door with his broad shoulders sat against it. And I tell you it is for your sake that I will not allow it. You may walk about all night, but you won't walk in here. Ladies and gents, she kept pacing up and down like Beelzebub more than a mortal woman, raving and ranting to such a degree that a crowd of people came and looked over the gate, and they began to cry, Bravo, Rouse! Go it, old lady! Hit him hard! He ain't got no friends! And all that stuff. You know how free and easy a London crowd is. And then she marched up to the gate and looked at them. And they fell away ashamed, and she walked into the house. But have her way she will before the sun goes down. She has sworn it, and she never breaks her oath. It is no concern of ours, said my uncle very sensibly. What have we to do with such family quarrels? What made you come to us, Mrs. Wilcox? Two things, sir. In the first place, you know more of the law than any gentleman I know. You remember how you told me that last winter? and every word you said came true as gospel. And what is more than that, poor Miss Jerry and Miss Frizzy backed her up in that same, she says to me, Oh, Miss Wilcox, do try to get that nice young man from Sunbury that married poor Kitty Fairthorn. He has more power over mother than anyone on earth. She is afraid of him, that's the truth, though she'd box my ears if she heard me say so. There might be time enough, she says, if you'd set off directly, and I'll pay all expenses. Well, I thought it must come from heaven that I should be thinking of the uncle and she of the nephew, and so come both gents, I beg of you. There'll be murder between them if you don't, for the police can't interfere, you know. Kit, let us go, said my uncle Corney, as some new idea struck him. We cannot interfere, of course, but we can see the end of it. Kitty was very much against my going, and I would not have left her unless Miss Parslow had promised to stay with her until our return, although it would compel her to send back the fly and beg a bed for the night from her old friend Sally. My uncle took a big stick, and so did I, and in a quarter of an hour we started in the tax cart with Mrs. Wilcox on the cushion. I was the driver and my uncle sat behind, for there was no room for three of us, all rather broad in front and certainly I was the calmest of the three, for the good lady was in a dreadful fright and fret, and my uncle sat heavily with his chin upon his stick, taking no notice of the roads or streets, but dwelling on the distance of bygone sorrow. 
The wrong he had suffered was greater than mine in one way, and less in another. Greater because it was incurable. Lighter because less cold-blooded and crafty, and not inflicted on him through his own wife. But I, with my kitty recovered, and still in the new delight of that recovery, had triumphed already in the more important part, and was occupied rather with contempt than hatred. And it seemed to me, too, an extraordinary thing, and the last I should ever have predicted, that I should be entreated by the daughters of that most naughty and headstrong woman to come and exert for her own good my imaginary power over her. We put up our card at the bricklayer's arms where Ted had been potboy, or potman, he had called himself, and then we all hurried towards Bullrag Park. The midsummer sun had just gone down, and as the red light glanced along the broad, stately roads, I thought of the words of that violent lady, Before the sun goes down, I will have my way. We passed between some posts into the open space, coveted vainly by builders where the old Scotch firs, which had been my kitty's landmark, still waved their black pillows against the western sky. Then a number of people came rushing by us, driven by that electric impulse which flashes through the human heart that human life is passing. With a contagion of haste we began to run. Can't come in. Nobody allowed past this rope. A posse of policemen had drawn a cord across the road outside the old gate because that was a very poor obstacle, and now I dare say there were a hundred people pushing, and in five minutes there would be a thousand. I said, I am Professor Fairthorne's son-in-law, and the two young ladies have sent for me, and Mrs. Wilcox is an old servant of the family who was sent in haste to fetch me. They dropped the rope at this and let us in, being reasonable as the police are generally unless you rub their coats up the wrong way of the cloth. But what a sight we had, when once we turned the corner. Having never been brought up in battlefields, but only where apples and pears grow, I found myself all abroad and felt my legs desirous to go away from one another. But my uncle laid hold of me and said, This is what it comes to. The man who has been a man may look on at the devil. Mrs. Wilcox turned back, for her nerves were rheumatic, but they would not let her pass the rope again. I was looking round and saw it with a desire to do the same, but my uncle had me by the collar, and I knew that he was right, though I would rather not have known it. Stop and see the works of God, he said, and I answered, No, I would rather not, if this is a sample of them. For before the front door there were things going on which made it impossible to let that house after it came into our possession even to a most enlightened widow from America, or at any rate she took it and then threw it up again. There were as good as three corpses laid out upon the lawn, with a doctor attending upon each and two policemen. One of them also had a magistrate. Uncle Corney drew me forward as I shrank behind the bay tree where Kitty had been with me when the great snow began. You are only fit for a turtle dove. Where is your gall? he whispered. It may have been a very low default on my part, but when my worst enemy lies on the ground I would rather lift him up than walk over him. My uncle was of sterner stuff, or less live softness, for his injury had been more deadly. He tried to drag me forward, but I would not budge, though I might make a beggar of myself by that refusal. "'Are you afraid to look at death, you white-levered young fool?' he whispered, and his face was black with a pitch of fury. I have been through ten times worse than death. 
I answered, looking at him steadfastly, and the lesson I have learned is mercy. Before he could answer, with the bitterness of justice, which to him was greater, two young women ran across the grass, and they both caught hold of me and shrieked. I could not make out what they said, because I was mixed up with sobs, and they cried both together. But I left myself to them, and they drew me on to the place where their mother lay stretched upon the walk, with a medical man bending over her. "'Dr. Wiggins?' he asked, and I answered, "'No, not a doctor at all,' and he said, "'Clear out. I shall take the four ounces on my own responsibility.' "'A friend of the family, a true friend of the family,' Miss Jerry exclaimed, to my great surprise, but he answered, "'So let him get out of the way, and the sooner you go away, too, the better.' The sour-faced woman, a faithful retainer, was supporting the poor lady's head on a cushion, and I scarcely allowed myself a glance at the proud face, now so deathly, but that one glance told me forever what all human pride must come to. "'Oh, come and see Downey. He can't be dead, too. Oh, come and forgive him before he is dead.' Which of the girls said this I know not, but I took up my hat, which I had thrown on the grass, and followed them to their brother. There lay the man who had robbed me of my wife, a cold-blooded, godless miscreant, robbed by his own hand forever of all hope of due repentance. Within a few yards of him lay his poor father, dead as a stone and cold as ice, slain by the wickedness he had begotten, shot through the heart by his heartless son. Donovan Volrag looked at me. He was sensible still, though before the waning light upon his ghastly face should vanish, light and darkness would be one to him. He knew me, and I am grieved to say for his own poor sake that he hated me still. He had not heard of Kitty's return, I suppose, having been so absorbed in his own affairs, and he muttered through the red foam that streaked his lying lips, for he had fired the ball through the roof of his mouth. How like, darling Kitty, run away with officer. She is with me. Her father found out your tricks and sent her home. She is well and very happy. She ran away with no officer. Let him alone, sir. Don't excite him, said the surgeon who was stooping over him. I must have you removed if you come near him. Then, with another turn of thought, he said, If there has been ill will between you, make it up. He cannot last half an hour. Will you take his hand if he wishes it? With pleasure, but I know that he does not wish it. Do you wish me to take your hand, Mr. Bullrag? If you do, look at me and nod your head. To my amazement, the dying man turned his eyes on me and nodded his head. His eyes were clouded with the approach of death, and I saw very little expression in them. Then he moved his left hand feebly towards me, while the other dropped as if through exhaustion to the ground. My right hand lay in his clammy palm, and bending forward I watched his face for some token of goodwill and penitence. Suddenly a red glare as of lightning filled his eyes, his features worked horribly, and his great teeth clashed as he tried to jerk me towards him. Luckily for me, I was poised upon both feet. At the flash of his eyes, I sprang aside. A rudder flash blinded me, and a roar rang in my ears, and upon the bosom of the dying man lay the short, thick curl, a love-lock Kitty was so fond of playing with. The ball had passed within an inch of my temple, and my forehead was black with the pistol smoke. Narrow shave! said the doctor. That will be his last act. 
I hope he will have life enough to know that it has failed. I had not the least idea he had got that revolver under his coat flap. What are the police about? It's not my place to see to a thing of that sort. And he might have shot me while he was about it. There he goes. I thought so. Serve him right. The great head fell back, and the square chin dropped. A dull gaze spread upon the upturned eyes. A wan, gray haze, as of icy vapor, crept across the relaxing face, and Donovan Bolrag was gone to render an account of his doings in the flesh. Mrs. Wilcox ran up with a sob and fetched the heavy eyelids downward. Poor young man! He have run his course. I hope he is gone to heaven, she said, but my Uncle Corney looked at me and at the fallen pistol. I wish him his only due he said, and I hope he has gone to the devil. End of chapter 65